It is such a blessing and a thrill to be at Living Word Christian Center because you are alive in the power of Jesus Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. That's why I stand before you today because I am alive by Jesus Christ in the power of his Holy Spirit. That's our legacy. That's our gift. It is what our God has done for us. And I'll tell you, there's, there's very few pastors that I have an opinion of the way I do, Lynn and Mac. They have been powerful. They have been strong. They have been steadfast. They have served. They have served bravely. And they have made a contribution here and put an unmistakable stake down for the state of Minnesota such that... This state, through our redeemed lives, lived out here because of these messages in this church, have made a difference in the state of Minnesota. So I thank you. I thank all of you. And I thank the, all of the people who are watching on live, online tonight, who are watching through podcasts, who are watching tomorrow when we speak and gather again tomorrow. Because God's word never changes, it never fails, it is what we continue to put out and what we message. And we're here tonight, I'm here tonight, to share the hope that lies within me and the hope that lies within you. And it comes from one source, and that is the word of God. And that's where I take my text this evening. And I'll start with this beginning text, and it's in Psalms 94, verses 20 through 21. Can wicked rulers be allied with you that who frame injustice by statute? They band together against the life of the righteous and condemn the innocent to death. I'm going to read that again, Psalms 94. Verses 20 through 21. Can wicked rulers be allied with you that who frame injustice by statute in the laws? They band together against the life of the righteous and they condemn the innocent to death. This doesn't sound like something that any of us would want, would want to be connected with in any way. Because the scripture tells us very clearly that when the wicked rule, the people mourn. Have you ever experienced that? Even in this state? In America? It's happened. And it also says when the righteous rule... The people rejoice. And have you ever experienced that? And which feels better? We know which feels better. And God is so good. And I want to talk about a few stories tonight of where this scripture has been so true in people's lives such that it caused them as believers to make a change in their life, in their world, in one way or another, because they were so vexed in their spirit, they didn't want to live under the wicked rule and how that brought the innocent to death and how the statutes hurt the righteous. 
And I want to start with a story that really deals with us. It deals with us and it deals with our nation. And to do that, I want to go back and just start through this year of 2020. And I said the message is about hope. So when I tell you that this message also has to do with 2020, you say, you got to be out of your mind. Look at 2020. Look at what this has been. It's been no fun for me, you might say. 2020, are you kidding me? What did we find out in 2020? We all had to be locked down in our homes to begin with. No one had ever seen anything like that. I started out my year in Australia. I was speaking about the blessings that could come to Australia if their government would align themselves with blessing Israel, the Jewish people, and recognize Jerusalem as the legitimate capital of the Jewish state. It was the very first time this had ever happened in Australia. We were meeting with the Parliament of Australia, and they came over, and not only just Australia, we had the uttermost parts of the earth that the Bible speaks of, places like the Solomon Islands, Togo, Fiji, all the places we'd love to be on vacation right now, but all these wonderful places where the gospel was meant to go and is, in fact, already gone. And so we were speaking of these wonderful things. And shortly after that, I came back to the United States. I was speaking down in Florida. And then all of a sudden, we started hearing about this Chinese coronavirus that seemed like it was impacting China and other places. And now all of a sudden, it started to come into the United States. It didn't seem like much. And then it started growing. And the first thing I remember hearing is that a city in Italy was going to close down. And I thought, a whole city is going to close down? I have never heard of that before. How could that possibly be? And as soon as my mind wrapped around that, then I heard on the news that now it was going to be a whole region in Italy that was going to lock down. And that captured my imagination. I thought, a whole region? How do you lock a people down in a city, much less than a region? And almost within a week, the news was released that the entire country of Italy was going to be locked down. A country? A country. How do you lock down a country? And so the unthinkable became the thinkable from a city to a region, to a country. And then Spain locked down. And then one country after another began to be locked down. What was going to happen? Fear started rising in people's hearts and people's spirit here in the United States. We were still able to walk around, but fear started rising. And then our president within days of finding out about a coronavirus case actually coming into the United States, literally within days, he made a decision that he was roundly condemned for, and it was this. He had Dr. Burks, Dr. Fauci, walk into the Oval Office and say, Mr. President, we have coronavirus in the nation, and if you don't lock down uh, controls in the United States, we could see two million people in the United States killed. The president listened to their advice, and he immediately 
lock down and stop all travel from China where the virus had originated into the United States. You see, we knew nothing of this virus. The world had never seen it before. Because as we have learned now, in all likelihood, this virus was man-made in a lab, most likely in communist China, and most likely, we don't know for sure, but most likely, intentionally, people were infected, and most likely, we don't know, but the evidence that we do know is that China refused to let anyone from Wuhan, China, leave Wuhan to go anywhere domestically within communist China. So the Wuhan, people in Wuhan had to stay in Wuhan. But strangely, if you went to the airport at Wuhan, what was open were flights to international destinations. So you couldn't go domestically within China but people from Wuhan who could potentially be infected could all go to New York. No problem there. And so they started to go until our president wisely said, that's it, and dropped the door, and no more were allowed in. <laughs> that action alone probably saved the United States of America from a death toll that we couldn't, wouldn't even want to begin to imagine. And our lives changed, didn't they? Our lives changed. From that moment when we heard those words that, our, that it wasn't just Italy, it wasn't just Spain, it wasn't just France, it wasn't just China, now it got a little close to home. When all of a sudden we were told that for a 15-day period, we were all going to go into lockdown, except for essential workers. And again, that was frightening, because we didn't know for nurses, or doctors, or EMTs, or firemen, or policemen, or people at grocery stores. We had no idea what their lives were going to mean. And they were extremely brave, because they got up, they went to work every day. They had no idea what this would mean, but they literally laid down their lives for their brethren to go to work every day to keep the society going. They deserve applause. And as the days and the weeks of 2020 unfolded, and as the days began of the 15-day lockdown, None of us knew what that was going to be like. None of us knew. We, that never happened before. Not in our lifetime. We had d all dealt with when John F. Kennedy was assassinated, those who were alive when his, when his demise came in the early 60s. It was a day that if you were alive, you remember that day. You know exactly where you were, exactly what you were doing. Just like those of you who were alive on September 11, 2001, you know exactly where you were when you heard the news. You knew exactly what that meant. You knew the terror that went through your eyes and your mind and in your heart that numbed you when you saw first the first tower collapse and the second tower collapse, and then you heard about the Pentagon being hit and then a plane going down in Shanksville, Pennsylvania, and you wondered, will America ever be the same? And then this happened, coronavirus, and we're still in it today. Who would have ever thought 
We thought we were going to shut our doors, stay at home, not go anywhere, do what we were supposed to do. And 15 days later, we could go back and resume our lives. That was a very long time ago. And as I stand here on this stage tonight, here at Living Word, we still don't know. No one has told us when this is going to end. We have no idea when our lives are going to come back. We've all tried to figure out how can we adjust our lives to try and get to normalcy, stay within the rules, not infect anyone else, not get our fe- infected ourselves, try and take care of our loved ones. What's this all going to mean? It hasn't been the same since. And we just don't know. This isn't the first plague that we've ever seen. There's been plagues all throughout history. There's been all sorts of devastations that have come throughout history. The Bible speaks of it very clearly, that plagues come and what, what the right thing is to do in 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles throughout the Bible. Even in Minnesota, we have history with plagues here in this state. A hundred years ago, there's a terrible plague, the Spanish flu, that we dealt with. But the interesting thing about this particular plague that we're dealing with now, this is the first time as I've talked to medical people that they know of in their memory or that they have read, this is the first time when we have quarantined not the sick, but the healthy. That hasn't happened before. We don't understand that. In fact, a member of Congress that I serve with who is still serving in the United States Congress sent me photos from Iowa of houses that were quarantined during the Spanish flu about 100 years ago, and there's quarantine signs that the county put out. As soon as someone was identified as having the Spanish flu, up went a sign on the front door of the house or in the yard so people would take precaution. Not that they were prohibited from going in, but take the necessary precautions and be forewarned because this was a serious thing. This is something very different, very different. And yet we look at the death rates, and the death rates aren't different from what we, from, it, they're very different from what we were told by the World Health Organization that has been off in practically every measure that they've given to us. But here we are. Here we are. Here in this year of de- dealing with fear, dealing with the pandemic, dealing with loss of jobs, dealing with changed organizations. You see that within the church. The church has had to change our organizations, our interpersonal relationships. My 89-year-old mother wasn't able to have interaction with her children and her grandchildren and her great-grandchildren to the point where it got ridiculous And you have to go in and see them and be with them because you can't leave them to that. So we've had to continue to adjust to this all year long. It's very different. What does it mean? Here in this nation and here in uh, across the world, what does this mean with this pandemic and with the economic loss and then the civil unrest? Here in this city, where this church is, 
I was off speaking in Washington, D.C., and I couldn't believe the story that I read on my phone, that in Brooklyn Center, Minnesota, a person put a Trump flag out in their yard, and along came someone at 4 o'clock in the morning and burned their garage down, two of their cars, and a camper in their yard, and wrote on the garage, Biden 2020, Black Lives Matter, Antifa. That was here, in Brooklyn Center. How could that be? What in the world is going on? Well, here in Minnesota, we were the first ones to see this unrest. The spark started here in Minnesota. And it's interesting. Many people don't realize what happened here in Minnesota before the spark of the tragedy of George Floyd's death on, on May 25th, Memorial Day, what had happened in the month before that. Because you see, because of the pandemic, we, uh, the, a Muslim Brotherhood front group named CARE had gone to the mayor of Minneapolis and said, it is Ramadan, it is our festival, we've been separated from each other, and so we want you, Mr. Mayor, to allow us to feel inclusive, and we want you to allow us to have broadcast across the city of Minneapolis five times a day the Islamic call to prayer. The mayor of Minneapolis said, sure, why not? And so before sunrise every day, three times during the day and after sunset, the Islamic call to prayer, which is praise to the Islamic God, went out across the city of Minneapolis. Most people don't know that happened. Even most people here in Minneapolis have no idea that that happened. And they wouldn't know because they were all in their houses because of the pandemic. But it happened throughout the month of Ramadan. That happened. It had never happened in any other metropolitan city in America before. This is the first time that ever happened in America. It ended, Ramadan ended on Saturday, before the George Floyd tragedy on Monday. It's an interesting confluence of events. We don't know if it's related, we don't know. But we do know that praise to a false god, to an Islamic god, not the god of the Bible, was broadcast across Minneapolis for 30 days before the event happened. And when that happened on Monday, it was a day that the entire world, let alone America, saw. They saw a, an American city being burned to the ground. The second, the second worst riot in the history of the United States happened here in Minneapolis, the worst being the Rodney King riots in Los Angeles, like nothing we had ever seen. We haven't been the same since because of the rise of Black Lives Matter. Black Lives Matter, it, the fact just has to be said. It was begun by Marxists who are members of an occult society, who have a purpose that is different than what we all were led to believe it was. We thought this was about helping black brothers and sisters, helping them rise up, recognizing, yes, their lives matter. 
There is no one, hopefully no one, doesn't agree with the statement, black lives matter, because they do to God. Black lives matter. All lives matter to Jesus Christ. But we we found out is that that's not what that organization means at all. It means the advancement of Marxism in the United States and the goal to overthrow the government of the United States and replace it with a Marxist government, something that has never been in the United States. The same with Antifa, which is a communist front group, which we found that most of the members of the Minneapolis City Council agreed with Black Lives Matter, the Marxist origin, and agreed with the goals of the Communist Front Group, Antifa, to the point where they said, we have got to defund the police, and they voted to abolish the police here in Minneapolis. Things that you would think in your right mind in the middle of murder, arson, mayhem, looting, Five miles of burned businesses. Five miles. Get in your car, drive five miles. Five miles of burned businesses. That is part of the legacy that came from the communist front groups, the Marxist groups that have made it their aim to find a city that they could start in for the revolution to overturn in the United States of America. This isn't new, you see. 103 years ago was the first instance in the world of communism coming in to revolutionize and overthrow a government. That was in Russia when the Bolsheviks came in. You know, it's interesting. I took pictures of Minnesota and laid them side by side with grainy black and white photos of the Bolsheviks coming into Moscow and what it looked like with the riots and with the murders that happened there. It wasn't terribly dissimilar from what the photos were here. Obviously, you know, the modern and the, the color, but the result was the same. Because what people fail to understand is what happened 103 years ago in Moscow is exactly what's happening today in the streets of major metropolitan areas here in the United States of America. It is an attempt to overthrow our, our system of government based upon a constitutional republic given to us by godly men and women and replace it with a system that is antithetical to that biblical system, one grounded in atheism, Marxism, communism. You wonder why we've had a bad year? You wonder why? Did the communist Chinese send this to America as a precursor? so that then the communists would come in and have revolution in our streets to this day. Every night in Portland, I've seen it myself in Washington, D.C. This is a plague. This is a different sort of plague, a plague that is grounded in rebellion. And the Bible tells us that, that rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. And isn't it interesting, that's the Black Lives Matter organizers. Grounded in the occult, grounded in Marxism, and grounded in sexual perversion, and the advancement of sexual perversion.
if there was ever a time for a church to rise up and be holy, rise up and preach the word of God, rise up and preach the life giving word of God and state what is true and what is good and that which is evil. This is the time. What else do we need? What other proof text do we need to boldly stand up, not be ashamed of the gospel, not be ashamed of what America is and stand for righteousness? Here in the state of Minnesota, as well as around the United States, we heard a story a couple months ago, President Donald Trump canceled something called critical race theory being taught to every federal department in the United States. He found out what it was. It was teaching Marxism to our federal employees and teaching them lies and hatred about the United States and who we are. I want to talk to you just for a moment about who we are in the United States of America. This last week, I had the privilege of going to the birthplace of the United States, Plymouth, Massachusetts. I've been a fan of history of the United States and have devoted myself to learning and reading and praising God for the history of the United States for over 40 years. One of the greatest treasures that I own is this book. My girlfriend gave it to me. It's called The Bradford History. This is the history of the pilgrims when they came to the United States. The pilgrims came to these shores in 1620. Governor William Bradford began to write this book 10 years after they landed in 1630. He continued to write this book, The Pilgrim Story, for the next 20 years. It's a remarkable story. It's your story. It's my story. Because it's the story of believers in Jesus Christ who were regenerated, filled by the Holy Spirit, lived in revival, continued to live in revival, did everything that they could, knowing they were sinners, knowing they weren't perfect, knowing they didn't get it right every time. But they were a covenant people. And they chose to live by the precepts of God's word. And because of their lives living according to the precepts of God's word, they so made a profound change that these changed lives were the seed that God sifted and used to put into this American soil and build up the most magnificent nation in praise to a worthy God the greatest economic and military superpower the world has ever seen. That's our history. And it began about 1,600 years after the birth of Christ. You see, there wasn't always a Bible. There were scrolls, but there wasn't a printed Bible. It wasn't until the late 1500s when a Bible actually came to be. But in the early 1600s, in a little no-account no place called Scrooby or Lincolnshire, London, England, a revival broke out. And in a village of 300 people, maybe 100 to 150 came to a living faith in Jesus Christ. 
The people in this village were part of the established church. In England, they had been Catholic under Bloody Mary. Elizabeth I came in, chopped off the head of Bloody Mary, and Protestantism came in. And then King James was the king during the time of the pilgrims. But God sovereignly did something. He revealed himself in this little village. And the people that were there were so taken, so changed, like any human being is who comes to know Jesus Christ. When we receive who he is, we become new creatures. The old is cast off. The new comes in. We invite the infilling of his Holy Spirit, and we can't stop. We can't go back to who we were because we are changed beings. We want to live for him. That's what these individuals did. But they weren't allowed to. The church would not allow them to live according to the dictates of their conscience. Imagine that. The church was persecuting them so much that they were meeting in houses and their pastor, John Robinson, was being persecuted. Persecuted to the point where, if you, if you, if you ever watch old movies, they talk about, Taking, putting a person on something called the rack, and they bind up with ropes your hands and your feet and then pull the rack and pull your bones apart. That's a kind of torture that was being meted out to people who went against what the established church wanted and instead wanted to, to worship by the dictates of the Bible. You see, the Bible wasn't available before. But now the Bible was becoming available. People could read it for themselves in their own language in English. They were literate. They were intelligent people. They were doing what we do when we first come to the Lord, consuming the word of God, taking it in and saying, we want to live not by what the established church is. That doesn't look like what the Bible says. We want to live by what the Bible says. And so this little group, this little band saw that religious liberty and the free, freedom to worship was worth more to them than life itself. And so they covenanted together. You see, that's when they became a covenant people. Because as they read the word of God, the one thing that sprung out to them, our God is a covenant God. He established covenant with Noah when he said he would never again judge the earth and flood it and extinguish all human life. He established covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob when he said, you are my people and I will take you to a specific land for a specific purpose, a blessing all nations on earth. He is a covenant-keeping God. And so this small band in Ingle, in in England said, we want this covenant God. We will band with each other. We will covenant with each other. And we will covenant with this holy God. And so they made an incredible decision. We're talking 1600, 1606, 1607. They're just like you and me. They probably looked somewhat like you and me. And they had to get rid of their living how they lived every day. You know, there was no social security net. But they decided we're going to have to steal away in the night because if we go during the daytime, the authorities will capture us. We could all be thrown in prison. We could all be killed. So they ventured to leave England, and that's what they did. They took all the money that they had. They hired a ship 
out of the Netherlands because the Netherlands they had heard was more tolerant to people of different faiths. They took their families, wives, little children, women who were pregnant, they took their bags, whatever they had, they went down to the beach to catch the boat and a captain came. It was a terrible storm. It was in the night, it was cold, it was raining, it was horrible. The captain got about half of them on the ship and then he decided, you know, I'm worried because horses were coming in the background with guns and it was the English authorities and they found out someone betrayed them and so the captain took off with half of them. Families were split up. Wives and little children were left shivering on the beach with nowhere to go. And so the English authorities took them and took them into prison. Eventually they were let go. Eventually they were allowed to leave. Eventually they joined their families in the Netherlands. It was a very tough way, you see. They didn't have money. They didn't have position. They weren't of any account. They had to learn a new language. They had to get a job at the lowest possible level that there was. But they were allowed to be free to worship. And that's what they did. Last year, I went to Leyden, Holland to see the Pilgrim House where the Pilgrim lived. Very, very tiny, very, very modest in the church where the Pilgrims were. They were there for about 12 years. What they saw is they had natural increases. They had more children. No one would come to join them. They couldn't increase their numbers because they could barely make a living. They were becoming old before their time because they worked so hard, and their little children were becoming old before their time because the labors were so hard. And it was about that time, 1607, when the English left for Jamestown in southern Virginia and so the pilgrims took note, and they prayed. They had nonstop prayer meetings. They felt the Holy Spirit was calling them to remove themselves. Imagine, they did it once. They learned to speak Dutch. They learned a whole new life. But they believed that God was calling them to be missionaries, to come to what we now call America, to be missionaries. They were so filled with the Holy Spirit, filled with the zeal of God, they were willing again to love not their lives unto death, take everything that they had, hire another ship, and go again. And again, the stories are horrific. I could go on for three hours telling you the horrific hardships that they went through. You see what God did. He took them from their beginnings in Scrooby and Lincolnshire and he had them in a furnace, in a furnace of refining fire, where he took these believers who never lost their zeal for Jesus Christ, who learned covenant to covenant together, to live as a body of Christ, to figure out how to do church and life and community together, to spread the gospel as much as they could in their community. But they saw then that what they needed to do is go and take the light of the gospel because they had heard that there are people, native peoples who lived in this land who didn't know Jesus and they were willing to sacrifice all. In fact, they wrote in this book that they were willing to lay their lives down and be as stepping stones for the gospel of Jesus Christ. They would be the stepping stones that others could walk on to come to this nation. And they sacrificed. And it took over two months 
I was just in the replica of the ship just this last week. And it's unbelievable when you think of it. Two of the women who got on board that ship were probably seven, eight months pregnant when they got on that ship, knowing that they would deliver their children when they were on board. They did. The children lived, but then died once they got to America. A hundred two came over on the Mayflower, the first ship. They were blown off course, and they were supposed to go to Virginia sovereignly. There was a terrible storm. They ended up on Cape Cod in Massachusetts. They knew they weren't where they were supposed to be. They understood godly jurisdiction. Their legal patent that they were traveling under was to go to Virginia. So they had no legal authority. Here they were, no provision, no protection, blown off course, and what were they going to do? So between them on the ship, the 102 covenant people wrote a covenant. You may have heard it in school called the Mayflower Compact. On their, the sail of their ship, they wrote, God with us. That's how they went. And so the first thing they wrote, in the name of God, amen. You know, when you think about it, that's all you need. In the name of God, amen. They absolutely didn't know where they were. They had nothing. In the name of God, amen. We come for the glory of God and for the advancement of the Christian religion. And they said, we covenant our lives together. And they went on and said that as we go forward, we'll make constitutions, statutes, laws, in conformance with the word of God for his glory as we figure out how to be a civil body politic. They figured out how to be a body, how to be a nation by being a church. When they figured out how to be a church, that was the basis for being a nation. Because you see, the way America started, it was a church plant. It was a church plant of a godly church that had gone through the cauldron of the fires of adversity and willingly went through it again and took their lives and came to this land so that they could bring the gospel of Jesus Christ and liberation to the Native American people who, who lived here, who they understood did not know the gospel. Who does that? Who does that? This is the heritage. We are being taught just the opposite today in our media, in our culture, in our public schools, even in other textbooks. But I'm telling you, this is the truth of what happened. This covenant-keeping people came to the United States. They came ashore very quickly that God sent a provision from the Indians, and Squanto and Samoset introduced themselves to the pilgrims. They worked together. They loved each other. And Massasoit, who was the chief of that particular Indian tribe, came and signed a peace treaty with them. This loving, peaceful, believing group of pilgrims knew how to live in community. They also knew that they came into a land that wasn't theirs, that God sent them to. And they extended the olive branch. And for 55 years, the longest period in American history, 
the pilgrims and the Indians together enjoyed the greatest period of race relations in the history of the United States. They weren't the first people to come to the United States, but the reason why we are the American spirit and the reason why we have the American character was forged in the lives of these believers who lived a continuous revival in their lives and community. They're an incredible, they're an incredible beacon for us. And since then, we've gone through the first great awakening, which was about 100 years after the, after the pilgrims came, the second great awakening, which was maybe 70 years after that, uh, the third great awakening that came just before the Civil War. But with each of these awakenings, what came was a new birth of freedom in the United States. Freedom comes, as the scripture says, where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty every time. That's why America is so unique, because we've been one ongoing revival where we've got a revival, where we've got the preaching and the teaching and the acceptance of Jesus Christ, that's where we see the life-giving power. You see, that is the hope. On September 26th, Jonathan Kahn had the return. Franklin Graham had the march on Washington, focused on confession of sin, focused on repentance, focused on returning to God. There is 50 days of blessing going on in the park right outside of the White House. 24-7 believers are praying, seeking the Lord for this nation, crying out for this nation, praying over the White House. There is event after event after event. God doesn't call one, he calls many. Because it is his desire to see that we would continue to turn toward him and serve him, this covenant-keeping God. I want to close with this. It's also here in Minnesota, too. You see, we had another plague in Minnesota that first started in 1851. It went throughout the 1860s. It was terrible in the 1870s, 1871, especially in 1876. It was a plague of grasshoppers. So imagine again, settlers, settlers that came to the state of Minnesota. Many are your ancestors from Norway, Sweden, Germany. They, they uh, had their farms, they put out their plants, and at, when all was said and done, the grasshoppers came and literally stripped every green thing in the fields. They ate the bark off the tree. Nothing was left. There's nothing else that they could do. They didn't know. 17, 1876 was the worst year ever. They knew 1877 was going to be terrible. And so they went to the governor, John S. Pillsbury, and they said, this is terrible. We've got to do something. And Governor John S. Pillsbury agreed that he would call a day of humiliation, fasting, and prayer in the state of Minnesota. And he issued a proclamation on April 9th for the day of prayer, humiliation, and fasting on April 26th of 1877. All businesses closed that day in Minnesota. All churches were open. Everyone was encouraged to pray in their home or pray in their church and ask God if he wouldn't save the state of Minnesota that day. That day came. People went to their churches. They prayed and they fasted. They went home. The next morning, April 27th, 
You know it can be cold in Minnesota. That day wasn't. It was so hot on April 27th that all of the grasshopper eggs that had been buried in the ground, they all came open and the larvae started to come out. And it was more grasshoppers than they had ever seen before. But the people had faith. They had faith in an almighty God. Within hours, that night on the 27th, the coldest rainstorm and freezing storm came from the winds of an almighty God. Every grasshopper egg in the state of Minnesota was killed, in, a larvae was killed in the egg. Every grasshopper was destroyed, and this locust called the Rocky Mountain locust became extinct that day within 24 hours of prayer and fasting, never to be seen again. That is our God. And right now our nation is doing exactly that, repenting, confessing, coming to in a solemn assembly before our God. That gives us hope because the covenant-keeping God who, who called us by his name, who, is, who called the covenant-keeping people to establish this nation, who has continued to answer our prayers, is that self-same Holy Spirit that fills us today. The Spirit of God that filled Noah, Adam, Abraham, the Pilgrim Fathers, Governor Pillsbury, that self-same Holy Spirit fills us. And, oh, Father, I know you hear us today. When we ask you with all humility, oh, Father, would you hear our prayer? Would you heal our land? Would you extinguish this virus, this plague, this pandemic? And would you bring us, Father, to a place of healing, Father, that we might worship you and know you in all of our ways? Amen.